Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at the newspaper. And coming up on this week's show, could the so-called miracle drug canakinumab slash the risk of heart attacks and cancer? It takes a bit of nuance to realize that what's essentially an academic finding of great excitement is not necessarily one that has any clinical applications. So it's not quite as wondrous as has been claimed. And why might Norway leave $65 billion worth of oil in the earth? Lufoten is something that the Norwegians see as the crown jewel in a country that doesn't lack in natural beauty. But first, extreme weather. Hurricane Harvey continues to wreak havoc in Texas. A record 30 inches of rain has fallen in Houston, turning roads into rivers. By the end of the week, though, the total rainfall is expected to double. Now, halfway around the world, more than 1,200 people have died in Nepal, India, and Bangladesh in the heaviest monsoon in years. And in Europe, it's not been spared either. There has been a heat wave so hot, it's called Lucifer. So what is going on with our weather? The Economist environmental correspondent Jan Petrosky has been looking into this, and he joins me now. Hello, Jan. Hi, Ken. So, Jan, 2017, is it just a particularly strange year? No, it's not particularly freakish. According to an analysis by Munich Re, which, as a reinsurer, really needs to get these things right, the number of such disasters more than trebled since 1980 to 2010. And a lot of scientists are increasingly vocal that this has been caused by man-made climate change. For a long time, scientists have been reluctant to attribute blame to climate change. What's changed now? Well, with hurricanes, they're still pretty reluctant because storms are just such complex phenomena. So when it comes to storms, the picture is somewhat hazy. However, there has been a lot of work on trying to attribute blame for events such as very heavy rainfall and heat waves. This began in, in 2003 with a suggestion by an Oxford professor, Miles Allen, who suggested that if the changing climate doubled the probability of an event occurring, that could, in effect, be interpreted as man-made climate change being responsible for half of that event, as it were. Um, since then, the so-called event attribution literature has grown as people have began analyzing specific events and global trends and trying to um, apportion blame to natural factors and to human factors. In other words, the climate is changing, which may help explain why Hurricane Harvey is actually the third once in 500 years event to hit Houston in the past 50 years. Uh, there was Hurricane Claudette in 1979, then Hurricane Allison in 2001. OK, so let me get this right. If we have a once in 500 year hurricane and it's happened three times in the last 50 years alone, it's suggesting that our models are not quite right. 
So this seems like a real problem for us because engineers are building roads and bridges and dams, all based on models of what they expect the adverse weather conditions to be, but those models are wrong. Very possibly so. The problem with the models is that precisely that they assume that the climate is unchanging. That is almost certainly not true. The probability of these extreme events has risen with climate change as the event attribution literature and simple counting of natural disasters seems to suggest. So we need to update these models. There is some resistance from the engineering community and often from their political taskmasters because some of these models, in order to be used as standards, they need to be approved by parliaments or congresses. Wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that if a standards body is going to change the models and the standards body's representatives are national representatives and a particular nation doesn't believe in climate change, then the models won't change and we'll be building infrastructure to the wrong specifications. That is not entirely inconceivable. That's outrageous. So in fact, the effect of, a, of an America that doesn't accept climate change means that our physical infrastructure is less sturdy. It is a worry. I mean, I'm certainly if the model suggests that your building should last for 100 years or should withstand the once in a 100 years event, and in fact, it's, it could only withstand a once in a 70 year event, that is probably a problem. But it need not be entirely devastating. I mean, it's not, it's not that suddenly our, our infrastructure is, is going to crumble in the next five or six years if we build it to the current specification. But there should be emphasis on trying as best we can to make sure that our models reflect the reality as it is changing and not assume that reality is static, which it certainly is not. So we have all of these terrible weather calamities around the world. Is this going to be the new normal? It probably is, and it could get worse uh, because the frequency of these events is has risen, but it hasn't stopped rising. So, um, in fact, in the next century, we should uh, places like Houston and, and Mumbai should probably prepare for a number of hundred-year floods. Jan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ken. Next up, new research suggests that a drug could cut the risk of a heart attack by 15%, and it can reduce cancer deaths by 50%. It has been trialed on 10,000 patients, and the so-called wonder drug is an anti-inflammatory injection called canakinumab. It could be, quote, the biggest breakthrough since statins, end quote, say the authors. But there are concerns regarding efficacy, side effects, and costs. And there have been concerns whether the findings have been hyped in the media. Natasha Loader is the Economist healthcare correspondent, and she joins me here now. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Ken. Natasha, first, can you give me an overview of what the scientists did and their findings? So for a long time, we've known that if you want to reduce uh, your risks of heart attack, you need to keep your cholesterol levels low and take statins. But there's a missing bit of the story in that we've always known that inflammation also plays a role. So they took 10,000 people, um, all of whom are at high risk of heart attack, and they're all receiving what's called standard of care. So they're all on statins. But some of them got quarterly injections of this drug, Ilaris or Canukinumab. And the sort of top line result was that those who were taking 150 milligrams had a 15% reduction in risk of heart attacks and strokes. So this sounds like it's an incredible finding and it changes what we should do. Well, 
Yes and no. I mean, there's some caveats in there. One of them was that rate of infection increased. If you suppress the immune system by giving patients an anti-inflammatory drug, um, you're also reducing their ability to fight off infection. And so it's hardly surprising that if you suppress the immune system that you will get more infections. And as a result, the patients on the study suffered more fatal infections. And so that means kind of on average, there wasn't really a benefit of taking the drug. So it's not quite as wondrous as has been claimed. I think what's really interesting about the drug and what is fascinating about the drug is it actually proves that reducing inflammation in a of itself can have a benefit in heart disease. What you're basically saying is that it's an interesting academic finding, but in terms of putting it into clinical practice, we would want to be very cautious. But reading about this drug in the larger press, you would miss that. In fact, it seems like everyone is saying that this is going to be the new wonder drug and the new era of medicine. Why do you think that science and technology journalism has gotten it so bloody wrong? I suspect that at the meeting, the uh, European Society of Cardiology, there was a lot of excitement about this particular study and say it's a breakthrough and it's it's thrilling and, you know, but it takes a bit of nuance to realise that what's essentially an academic finding of great excitement is not necessarily one that has any clinical applications. Could there be another way to create an anti-inflammatory drug that limits the side effects but actually is effective at treating cancer and reducing the risk of heart disease? That's definitely a possibility. But for most of us, the easiest solution is better diet and um, good amount of exercise. And I think that's definitely worth bearing in mind. God forbid I have to give up dessert and also break into a sweat. I'd rather just take a drug. Well, that's <laughs> that's as maybe. But until they can bottle uh, the effects of good diet and exercise without you dropping dead from side effects, then I think you're going to be I'm stuck. stuck. Well, I'm really glad that you're on the show to dispel the hype. Okay, you're welcome. You can read Natasha's analysis in more detail in this week's edition of the newspaper. Just go to economist.com or pick up a copy from your local newsagent. And if you'd like to subscribe, go to subscription.economist.com. Finally, we come to Norway, where a debate is raging. Should $65 billion of oil be extracted from an area of spectacular natural beauty? Lufotin is an archipelago with dramatic peaks jutting from the sea and often lit by the northern lights. The two main political parties are both in favor of lifting the oil drilling ban. And with an election in September, the demonstrations are hotting up. But Matteo Fabas, a contributor to The Economist, thinks that the moratorium will remain. Hello, Matteo. Hello, Ken. So tell me, why are both parties in favor of lifting the ban? So Norway has grown tremendously rich exporting its oil, but Norway's oil production has been declining. It's about half of what it was 15 years ago. And the main reason for this is a lack of investment to find new fields. So they think that finding new fields, and especially in Lufoten, will help fill this gap. And I think Lufoten is especially good for this because a lot of the new fields are located quite far from the shore. A lot of them are in the Barents Sea, the Norwegian Sea, the fields that are close to Lofoten and around Lofoten are very close to the coast, so much easier to access. But there will be eyesores and there's probably tourism involved. I think I can see the nature of the clash. The people don't want you to drill. There was a poll recently which was done about whether to start impact studies 
which is the first step towards exploiting and, uh, and then drilling for oil. And about 44-45%, I think, were against, and just 30% were for. Lufoten is something that the Norwegians see as the crown jewel in a country that doesn't lack in natural beauty. So what would be the environmental consequences of drilling? They would be quite significant, and actually at two levels. The first level is the local and regional one. It so happens that the Lufoten is the warmest region in the whole of the Arctic cycle, which allows algae to develop in a, in a big number near the islands, which in turn feeds a lot of fish. 70% of the fish that is caught in the Barents and the Norwegian Sea happens to use Lufoten as a breeding ground. And this in turn feeds a big population of marine mammals. And there are also a lot of birds. Uh, it is mainland Europe's biggest seabird colony. So the, the ecosystem is very significant, and, and Lufoten is an essential cog in this ecosystem. So that's the local aspect of it. Now at a broader level, uh, Norwegians think that it is necessary that Norway leaves this oil in the ground to comply with the Paris Agreement that was signed last year. And that stipulates that in order to not breach this two-degree global warming limit, a big portion of the fossil fuels that is still to be found and dug out of the earth needs to remain there. Now, in your article, you lean towards the idea that the ban is going to remain. Why is that? Because looking at the latest polls and the way they've been evolving in recent weeks, it seems unlikely that the two main parties will be able to govern alone. They won't be able to form a majority government. And if they are to form a minority government, they won't find any allies that are capable of supporting a lift of the ban. Most of the, the small parties are in favor of keeping the ban, and they will have to compose with it, either as part of a coalition or by negotiating an agreement with a small party that will provide support, but in exchange for leaving the ban in place. So when are we going to find out what happens? In a few weeks' time, when the Norwegians go to the pool. That's really interesting. Thank you very much, Mathieu. You're welcome. It is an interesting conundrum the Norwegian government faces. What do you think they should do? Should they drill, baby, drill? Or should they leave it in and invest the money they otherwise would have spent drilling in green technologies? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can reach us via email at radio at economist.com. Sadly, that is it for this week's Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com/banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.